0: in front of you for several sessions uh, today and tomorrow. So my task, my topic over these three lectures is what I will call consequential libertarianism. It's sometimes called cost-benefit libertarianism or economic libertarianism or pragmatic libertarianism, to distinguish it from alternative kinds uh, of libertarianism. It is a particular version of the libertarian view. like all versions, it is, of course, going to advocate for small government. We'll discuss exactly how small, but much, much smaller than current levels of government. But I'm going to argue for that in a very specific way that will be familiar to many, but maybe not entirely familiar to everyone. And so my goal is to explain this approach uh, and discuss its implications over these three uh, sets of lectures. So this morning, part one, I will explain what I mean in more detail by consequential libertarianism. I'll give some overview of what the policies are implied by that perspective without really defending them or giving any details yet. And I'll give you the basic intuition of why we should think that the libertarian conclusion, very small government, is probably the right conclusion, at least in the vast majority of cases. Then the second part, this afternoon after lunch, I'll discuss all the consequences of big government, e.g. is big government, and talk about what the goal of government policy should be. Should it focus on efficiency? Should it focus on liberty? Should it focus on efi- uh, equity? Or variations on those themes. Okay. And then tomorrow, I uh, believe in the afternoon, I will go through lots of examples and give much more detail. Some policies that seem like no-brainers from a consequentialist perspective, but also talk about a bunch of policies which are maybe hard to analyze from the consequential perspective, perhaps also from a rights-based perspective, but it's important to talk about those to see both the uh, strengths and the weaknesses of the consequentialist approach. So, as you know, I assume consequential, excuse me, libertarianism comes in two rough flavors. This is doing grave injustice to the specifics, But roughly speaking, we think of either philosophical or rights-based approaches or consequential or pragmatic approaches. So the philosophical approach can be summarized very simply and cleanly. It argues that individuals have rights, typically referred to as natural rights, and asserts that policies should never infringe those individual rights. And of course, notes that any policy you can think of, to varying degrees, but any policy you can imagine, does infringe individual rights in one way or another, and so essentially all interventions by government are unacceptable from the philosophical libertarian perspective. Consequentialist approach is going to certainly sound very different. Uh, The suggestion is that when you're evaluating a proposed intervention of any kind, whether it's drug prohibition or economic regulation or bans on particular uh, sexual activities or anything you can think of, you should start by asking these questions. What exactly is the problem that this intervention is designed to fix, is allegedly going to fix? If you don't have a clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish, it's very hard to accomplish anything. Is that problem large or small? Even the most pro-government, big government person out there will recognize that interventions have some costs. So if the problem itself is small to begin with, maybe you should just stay out of the way. Can private responses ameliorate whatever this problem is, okay? We'll have many examples through the several lectures discussing ways the private sector does tend to address the imperfections in markets and society more generally. If you're going to intervene, what are the different ways, okay? Frequently, people make assertions along the lines of some people misuse drugs, therefore we should outlaw drugs. That's at a minimum a jump if you believe some people misuse drugs and we should try to do something about that there's a whole set of policies you could envision, so you should think about the whole range and the pros and cons of that whole range. You should, of course, ask whether this intervention is going to reduce the problem. If outlawing drugs doesn't reduce the consumption of drugs, it's probably a stupid policy no matter what you think about whether it's good or bad to consume drugs or misuse drugs. Okay? And we of always have to ask about cost. Over and over and over again, advocates of policy talk about the fact that they may have benefits, and some of them do, some of them might, but of course they have costs as well, and we have to balance that out. And in particular, oops, sorry, blew that already. Um, focus on the unintended consequences. This will be a huge theme throughout the discussion. Okay. It's easy to see some of the negative effects of intervention. It's often much harder to see all the possible negative effects, some of which might not show up for 10 years or 50 years or 100 years, but nevertheless, we should think about that possibility and take it into account. Okay. So, if you've asked all those questions and you've really convinced yourself, okay, excuse me, if you've asked all those questions, then the consequentialist the approach says we should intervene, we should have a government policy if, but only if, you're really convinced that the consequences from intervention are better than just staying away. Similarly, if you're comparing different policies, we should choose A over B if taking into account all the intended consequences, all the actual effects, all the other aspects uh, that were on the previous slide, if you think that the set of consequences from intervention A are better than those from intervention B. So, consequential libertarianism is just cost-benefit analysis, dressed up with a slightly fancier word, okay? it's different only in the sense that it certainly encouraged taking into account a very broad range of costs and benefits. If I just said cost-benefit, you would think I had a little spreadsheet, I had costs on one side, benefits on the other, we had numbers, maybe ideally numbers all in dollars on each side attached to each cost or benefit. We could add it all up and boom, see which was, be- which was greater and go with whichever way it came out to be. By costs and benefits, I'm going to include a whole set of less tangible or highly intangible effects, effects on social norms, effects on people's attitudes, respect for the law, and so on. Okay? Those may be hard to measure, but it doesn't make them unimportant. So, but consequential analysis wants to include all of that. Now, you can guess that as with doing cost-benefit analysis, this approach is not going to lead everyone to the same conclusions. Economists generally would say, sure, we could think about all the consequences, and yet economists would disagree radically about some particular policies we're going to discuss. So why doesn't this approach lead to one set of conclusions? Well, first of all, we can have different assessments of the facts. Some people think that minimum wage laws have a big effect in reducing employment. Some people who've looked at the evidence think it has a very small effect in reducing employment. So given that social science... is imperfect in many ways. It doesn't draw super strong empirical results about every issue we care about. So there's room for reasonable people to disagree about the science, about the magnitudes, or even the signs of some effects. Maybe even more importantly, people think that they disagree about the appropriate values or weights to use in adding up all these different costs and benefits. Some people will think that drug prohibition is a good thing because it reduces the use of drugs, other people think that that is a cost of drug prohibition because people use drugs because they want to. We shouldn't interfere with their ability to do that. Let them get whatever benefit they get from it. And so if you disagree about the sign of the particular effects, even if you agree on all the science, you might come to different conclusions. So at this point, you might be tempted to say, I think you should be tempted to say, gee, you've described this rational-sounding framework to think about all these policy issues, and yet your approach really is never gonna lead us to specific conclusions. It's never gonna convince anybody who doesn't already agree with you because there's so much noise about the facts and the science, there's so much room for people to have different values that they use to evaluate to weigh those different consequences that it's never gonna have any bite. So the second part of my claim, the, the empirical claim, is that for reasonable assessments of the evidence and reasonable values, Consequential libertarianism is going to convince you that the negatives of intervention almost always outweigh the positives. Now, of course, I've used a vague word like reasonable. You'll see what I mean by reasonable as we go along. And, of course, there are going to be people, sometimes lots of people, who will disagree with what's a reasonable set of values and so on. But my claim is if we apply this approach consistently, there will be a lot more agreement, a lot more consensus that the size of government should be small. So small government is usually better. How small do I mean? I mean removing all government adopted since the 90s, and I mean the 1790s. So I want (laughs) to make a very strong claim, not just a tinker around the edges uh, kind of claim. If we could get back to the 1990s, it would still be progress, but I want to go much, much farther than that. Okay, so what I want to do next is just describe what government would look like in libertarian land, or what it would not look like, to be more careful. Um, And I haven't told you why that much, much smaller government is obviously better, but I think it's useful before we go through that to see a map of where we're going so you have a better idea of how uh, radical the perspective is. Okay, so this is just giving you, to start, a history of where the U.S. economy and a little bit on other economies has been. So the size of government expenditure as a percent of GDP in roughly the first century of the republic was essentially nothing with the exception of the Civil War. You can see that wars, this is World War I, this is World War II, lead to huge increases in expenditure relative to the size of the economy. And then something happened, plausibly some combination of the Great Depression in here and some after after effects of World War II, we now have a permanently much higher level of government. The top line, of course, is the total. This red line is the federal government. And the smaller green line is state and local government. So the post-World War II period has clearly seen an enormous expansion of the size of government in the US. This just gives you the other side of the ledger. It gives you uh, tax revenues as a percent of GDP. Roughly the same picture, Except, if you can remember the previous slide, you'll remember that expenditure was continuing to go up okay, in the last couple of decades. Revenues have kind of flattened. That obviously implies bigger deficits. You can see that directly by looking up the data on the U.S. deficits. And the projections are that that imbalance just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So that's something the U.S. and most countries will have to deal with, and I'll be able to talk about it a little bit later. This is just one other way of looking at the size of government. This goes back to 1939 and gives you employment as a percentage of total employment. What is interesting here is that at the federal level, employment has actually been going down relative to the size of the economy, pretty dramatically and pretty consistently. This huge bump is military in World War II. The gradual decline is in part... Having a smaller military relative to the size of the economy, and perhaps a more capital-intensive as opposed to labor-intensive military. Since the roughly the early 70s, okay, the employment at the state level has been basically flat, and the overall amount of employment has been going down. That might sound somewhat inconsistent with the idea that government has been getting bigger and bigger, more and more interventionist okay, in the US over the post-war period. The answer is it doesn't take very many people to write a lot of checks. One person with a powerful computer can send Medicare and Social Security checks to literally tens of millions of people. So the government still has huge reach, but it's not so much from having more and more government employees. Indeed, slightly the reverse. Okay, so that's just a little background. Uh, This shows you some comparison of the U.S. size of government relative to other more or less similar countries. So this is uh, taxes as a share of gross domestic product. U.S. isn't perfect, okay? of course we'd like to have lower taxes, but it's not so bad compared to most similar countries. This shows you a different measure of government's intervention, government consumption expenditure relative to GDP. U.S. is about, uh, where'd it go? It's somewhere in here. I had it this morning. There you go, okay. So again, US is not the least interventionist country by this measure, but you know, below the median, okay, so not, not hugely large size of government. Okay? So what would government look like in what I'll call libertarian land? Uh, don't know if I spelled that out anywhere yet, but LL is libertarian land, okay? So the one substantial federal activity would be national defense, as you would guess, In terms of spending, employment, any other measure, that would swamp everything else. Of course, the government would have a few other federal activities that are almost inevitable. To pay for the military, you have to raise some taxes. That occurs. There would be a few federal crimes, like, say, treason or piracy or maybe counterfeiting the currency. But compared to... Now, where we have more and more crimes that are federal crimes, very much a post World War II or even last several decade development, there'd be essentially no other crimes under federal law. We would plausibly, in libertarian land, have some embassies or consulates in other countries, negotiate a few treaties, possibly enforce patents and copyright, although libertarians are more and more divided about whether patent protection is a good use of government uh, and maybe we should at least scale back or repeal patent and copyright enforcement, uh, in the, even, even though that might have some effects on innovative activity. Okay? If we think about cabinet departments in libertarian land, we would eliminate basically all of them. Okay? <laughs> there are a few that would persist, although, of course, even these would be much, much smaller in libertarian land relative to today. If you have a Department of Defense, okay, of a the military, then plausibly you have a Department of Defense. There's a small number of federal crimes, so that's why justice is there. Relations with other countries, which I think libertarians can have reasonable sympathy for, not invading other countries or occupying them, but discussing with them, having treaties, negotiating so that we don't have wars and occupations and so on. And, of course, if there's money, there needs to be somebody to keep track of it, but teeny relative to the current size and scope of the federal government. Similarly, if we went through the alphabet soup, of the zillions of government agencies in Washington, and this is, oh, sorry, this is only a teeny handful, okay, they're all gone. There's no EPA in libertarian land. There's no CIA. There's no Federal Election Commission because there are no laws on about uh, campaign finance. There's no NASA or NIH or NSF. There's no Federal Emergency Management Administration and so on and so forth. So I'm talking about explaining why all of those agencies are doing more harm than good. We'd be better off leaving all those issues uh, to the market. State government, okay, I think libertarians are somewhat more agnostic, would take a somewhat you know, less strong view. Certainly accept that state governments would operate a criminal justice system and enforce property rights. Okay? Libertarians are very much in favor based on consequential arguments of having government define and enforce property rights. So that's somewhat similar to what we currently have, except that a whole bunch of laws we currently have would not exist in libertarian land, at any level, state, federal, or local. No laws against drugs, gambling, prostitution, uh, and the like. State governments, or perhaps uh, uh, local governments as designated by the states, might do things like fire protection, you can imagine a plausible case for a state-level negative income tax. Lots of libertarians would disagree, but okay, some would endorse that. Maybe some government intervention in the education market in a very low-key way, vouchers for K through three, but nothing like the state universities or massive intervention we have now. Maybe some role for state governments and in infrastructure, such as highways and so on, okay? So that's state government criminal law sort of talked about, okay, but it's useful to say it in a different way. At the federal level, in contrast to what we have now, no laws against, um, uh, there, were, there would be laws, excuse me, against tax fraud, treason, and so on. Okay, and at the state level, the standard things that the, F, that the FBI calls the index one crimes, murder, assault, robbery, rape, et cetera, that is violence and theft, okay, but tons of things that would not be crimes, no laws at any level against about weapons, about gambling, about vagrancy or drunkenness. Plausibly, I think, very few, if any, laws against white-collar crime, like embezzlement or insider trading or anything like that. The consequentialist perspective, the libertarian view, suggests that tort liability and private actions will do a better job of dealing with those issues as well. Um, Slightly beating a dead horse here, but here's a set of things libertarians would not regulate. Okay. Don't need to go through them all. No government protections for unions. Note, that's not saying no unions. Private groups want to organize and call themselves a union. Libertarians would defend. They have every right to do that, but the government shouldn't put its thumb on the scale. Libertarians are very skeptical about antitrust laws, about anti-discrimination laws, about federal environmental regulation in particular, about health and safety regulation, about... Uh, entry barriers, licensing fees, certification. This has become a really big theme in libertarian uh, policy circles recently. No regulation of financial markets, a huge difference from current policies. Small things like no building codes or energy efficiency standards, uh, no gun controls, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay. So again, the point is radically different. So summing up what I've said so far, I've told you what I mean by consequential libertarianism. I've described what libertarian land would look like. And it's not complete fantasy. If you think about the US in 1790, that's roughly what we had. A few exceptions, alien sedition acts and other things, but very similar to what I've described in the previous slides. But I haven't yet told you why the consequential view is right or convincing or good in any sense. So that's the next step. Now we need to, uh, more formally, more specifically, talk about economics. So what is economics? I think most people here know that, but I want to describe it in a particular way that I think is useful. I describe it as the combination of one fact and one assumption. The fact is resources are scarce, and that means all decisions, however those decisions are made, whether you choose randomly, whether you choose purposefully, whether someone makes the decisions for you, all decisions have to respect constraints implied by the fact that resources are scarce, only 24 hours in the day. At any moment in time, there's a finite amount of GDP. Given existing factor endowments and technology, a finite rate at which GDP could grow in a year or over a decade or things like that. There are just finite limits. There are, in different terms, budget constraints or other types of constraints that are laws of arithmetic that nobody should have an opinion about. They just are scientific constraints, inevitable constraints. Now the assumption, what drives almost all of economics, is to assume that people or groups of people or organizations have goals and they pursue those goals the best they can given the constraints, that they have some purposeful actions trying to achieve those goals. Standard example is firms maximizing profits, consumers maximizing utility, and things like that. But nothing in economics, one of the ways we typically get slandered is by people seeing, saying that we just assume everybody is focused only on material goods or only on profits, okay, is the goals can include huge range of things. Businesses might maximize the amount they want, are able to give to charity. Okay? Individuals might maximize not just their own welfare but their children's welfare, their grandchildren's welfare. People might put in their goals equity or sharing or fairness or some moral notion or things like that. There's no constraint on what the goals might be. There's only, okay, the assumption that people are roughly acting in a way that attempts to achieve those goals. You should note that that's an assumption. Nobody knows whether consumers are rational and are deliberately trying to maximize their utility. All we know is that that assumption combined with um, the constraints seems to do a reasonable job of describing the way the world behaves. Okay? But it could be that people are choosing somewhat randomly, choosing on some other basis that we can't understand. Okay? So this is an assumption. It seems to be an accurate and useful assumption. Okay. So what does that imply? Economics says people do their best to achieve their objectives subject to the constraints. Okay? And that means that if the constraints change, behavior is going to change. What people will do will change. If a new technology is available, if you have more hours to do something, if the price of some of the inputs that you use as a firm changes, then your incentives have changed, and so your behavior will change. Economists almost always just describe that as incentives matter. That's partially meant to push back against the view that people just do something because they are that type. Okay, people who are alcoholics drink because they're alcoholics, as opposed to the amount alcoholics drink might depend on the price of alcohol. So you might be able to affect people's alcohol consumption with a tax on alcohol. Combination of the fact and the, and the assumption suggests that incentives matter. Okay? So we, in particular, for our purposes, want to think about the incentives that are created by policy. So consumers will buy less of a good if a tax raises the price of a good, as I just mentioned. Firms will relocate if taxes on their profits uh, go up in one location relative to another. We've had lots of discussion of that over the past year because of the uh, Trump tax cuts, which was explicitly focused on incentivizing firms to locate in the United States relative to other countries, okay, by lowering the the effective tax rates on corporations that stay uh, in the US. Politicians, the one thing I probably believe the most strongly is the third point, Politicians will change their positions if public opinion changes in that direction. Politicians also are creatures we could model using the economics framework. Their objective is to get reelected. Their constraints are the views of the voters. So if the voters' views change, politicians' positions will change. Just as an illustration, this is a famous uh, and and nice illustration of the idea that incentives matter, that changing policy affects that. This is showing us, on the horizontal axis, the possible tax rate an economy might have, assuming, for simplicity, that everyone faces just one single tax rate. We don't have a complicated hodgepodge. So what happens if we have a zero tax rate? We collect zero tax revenue. Okay, pretty straightforward. What happens if we have a 100% tax rate? Well, we'll probably have very close to zero revenue. A few odd people might... And voluntarily send checks into the government, but most people will either not work or they will hide all of their income from the government if the tax rate is 100%. So we know these two points of this curve, and then it's natural to think that as you go from a high tax rate to a low tax rate, okay, you might be able to get some revenue because more of it will come out of the shadows. Okay? And if you started from here, as you raise the tax rate, you'll get more revenue, but there is some point, the peak of what's known as the Laffer curve, at which you would get the maximum amount of revenue, there's also likely a point that you can identify as what's best for economic growth, which would certainly be less than or equal to the revenue maximizing point. So, point of this for the moment is just to say, it illustrates that incentives matter. If you have too high an incentive, disincentive to work, people will not work and you'll get uh, zero tax revenues. So, economics implies that incentives matter that raises the possibility of unintended consequences. All policies have stated objectives. Those stated objectives may or may not be the objectives of the people who actually advocated for the policies. You may have heard of a theme called bootleggers and Baptists, okay, uh, which says many, many cases of policies, there's a story of why it's good, okay? Those are the Baptists. They say that this particular policy, like banning alcohol, is going to be, help people live better lives, engage with religion more, whatever, because it'll keep them away from alcohol. And then you have other people who are going to benefit from the policy, the bootleggers, who make more profit from alcohol in an underground market. And often those two groups conspire to foist uh, on everyone a policy which is mainly or substantially in the interest of a self-interested group, not the group that has the high-sounding, the high-minded objectives. But whatever the stated objectives, okay, Policies can change the incentives in lots of ways that nobody anticipated and that nobody wanted. So that is, in a nutshell, key reason why we should think policies generally are going to be worse than non-intervention, because the treatment's going to be worse than the disease, even when you think there is a disease to be cured. Okay, so let me talk about some examples to illustrate that, because that's a super crucial point. I won't get through all of these. Okay? The Endangered Species Act is a fun one. It's meant to protect you know, Bambi and the Snail Darter and the Northern Spotted Owl and all that sort of stuff. Okay? In some cases, it tends to do that. It does it by identifying habitats of species that seem to be endangered okay, and telling the property owner, you cannot do anything to develop that habitat. So a lumber company in the Pacific Northwest can't cut down all its trees because that would be bad for the northern spotted owl. So what does that lumber company do? Well, if it's smart, it cuts down the trees before anybody found a northern spotted owl on its land. And there's well-documented evidence of that in all sorts of settings. So in fact, the Endangered Species Act might be killing off endangered species by encouraging the preemptive destruction of habitats which otherwise might persist for five more years or 20 more years or 50 more years. Bans on organ sales is very simple. They kill people. Why? Because people are on waiting lists, waiting for kidneys, because the supply is limited by voluntary donations, because the government in 1984 outlawed the use of any monetary mechanism at all to help elicit or allocate uh, organs, kidneys, livers, and things like that. I talked about the corporate income tax. Drives corporations overseas, so might even kind of lower the wages of, of domestic workers. <laughs> Minimum wages and rent control. Let's take rent control. Okay. Tends to raise rental rates by discouraging people from wanting to build apartment buildings. You don't want to build an apartment building if you can't set a, a reasonable rate to charge, a reasonable rental rate, so that you recover your investments and so on. Um, High-stakes testing and accountability. Okay. Two-thirds of this room probably hasn't ever had to go through this. The students in the room have had to go through this. You have to take all these standardized tests to get your high school degree. Schools are evaluated on how their kids do on those high-stakes tests, and there are monetary rewards for teachers and schools that do well on them. So what happens? You get a lot of cheating. You have many well-documented cases of teachers who take the Scantron sheets, those pieces of paper with all the little bubbles, ABCD, that you fill out with a number-two pencil, and they take them and they change the answers before they turn them in to be evaluated, Or they walk around the room as the tests are being given and say, I think the answer to question six is C, and so on and so forth. So again, an unintended consequence of something which may or may not have been well-intentioned, but nevertheless has some unintended negative consequences. Cap and trade or carbon taxes, doesn't matter which one of these you think about. If a given country like the US adopts that, it raises the price of carbon, that incentivizes businesses which use a lot of carbon-based fuel to want to locate somewhere else. They plausibly will locate in places like India or Japan or, or uh, China that use predominantly coal, which has a higher carbon content than the natural gas or oil that would be used if the company stayed here, so they might be increasing carbon emissions rather than reducing uh, carbon em- emissions. Flood insurance subsidies is obvious. People build too much in floodplains, uh, the estate tax. Uh, rewards tons of people and makes them richer than they should be because they have careers as lawyers who help people evade the estate tax. The Food and Drug Administration, sort of a favorite libertarian sort of whipping boy, kills people according to the existing evidence. Why? Because it keeps some bad drugs off the market that might otherwise have done harm but it delays the introduction substantially of all the drugs which are beneficial, and so people are dying as they're waiting for the long set of FDA trials and evaluations to occur. Wage and price controls in World War II seemed like a good idea at the time because businesses couldn't hire enough labor, okay? um, and, Sorry, because the government didn't want to have to spend huge amounts, okay, in order to, uh, you know, Build, build munitions, and so on and so forth. They didn't want to have big inflation during World War II. They imposed wage and price controls. What businesses tried to do in response was to start offering benefits. And at the time, they were allowed to treat the benefits as not taxable. That's why your current health insurance benefits, for anyone who's currently employed, are not taxed. That's why people have their health insurance through employers. That's a crazy system. One, it's subsidizing the purchase of health insurance, so people are buying overly generous policies, and it's tying your employment to your employer, which is not good for the fluidity, for the dynamism of the labor market. So one more thing to say before starting to wrap it up is characteristics of consequential libertarianism is that it makes it relatively natural to think about saying some policies are really bad and some policies are sort of bad and some policies are probably silly but don't really matter. And that's somewhat different than the tone you get from philosophical libertarians. I've certainly had conversations with uh, philosophicals where they tell me every policy is awful. It doesn't matter whether it affects three people or 3,000 people or 3 million people. It doesn't matter what it costs. Any intervention is automatically forbidden. Under consequential libertarianism, you would absolutely say that drug prohibition is a really terrible policy, a moderate syntax on drugs or alcohol. I don't think libertarians would generally endorse, but it doesn't do a huge amount of damage either. It makes drugs or alcohol more expensive for the people who are not going to hurt anyone by using them. It probably doesn't have much effect in discouraging use by the people who do misuse them. So it's probably sort of a waste, and yet it doesn't create a black market, it doesn't create the violence and corruption that comes from drug prohibition. Okay, so you know, if you were forced with this choice, you would very easily say you pr- take this, the moderate syntax over drug prohibition under a consequentialist approach. The philosophical approach maybe doesn't nat- naturally lead to this ranking of policies and talking about really bad ones versus um, only mildly bad ones. Lots of other examples, okay, libertarians, They are pretty generally opposed to a generous welfare state, but a stingy welfare state, still a negative for most libertarians, but maybe not as much, and so on and so forth. So some people actually regard this feature as a bug, not not a benefit, but I leave that to you. It certainly is a characteristic of the consequentialist approach. So let me summarize what I've said so far. Consequential libertarianism says, choose policies based on their consequences. And what we can say is, that at some level, everyone agrees. It's hard to argue with the framework that just says, let's be rational about this. Well, Donald Trump would probably disagree with that. But uh, at some level, that shouldn't be controversial. And yet, we obviously, across the whole country, have wildly different views about policy. So why is that? As I mentioned, it's either because we have different assessments of the consequences, or we weight those consequences Uh, in different ways. So my talk this afternoon is going to do two things. It's going to argue that consequences are generally bad, okay, for two kinds of reasons. First, as I mentioned, the policies often just don't work. They just don't do the things they were supposed to do. And second, they have all these unintended consequences. So I'm going to go into those two points, okay, in much more detail. And then I'm going to argue that agreeing on values, on what weights we should assign to efficiency versus equity and all that, doesn't really matter, at least in the way I'm going to frame it, it doesn't matter whether you think policy should be trying to promote economic efficiency, GDP per capita, say, or individual liberty, non-interference with individual decisions, or you think it should be trying to promote some definition of equity. Whichever of those you think should matter or some combination of the three, you should still conclude uh, that small government uh, is the best. OK. That's it for this morning. Take questions. Thank you very much. Uh, I think they're going to bring some mics. And they would like you, if you can, to go up to the mic. Um, if, you, if you can't easily make it to the mic, just raise your hand and they'll bring it around. And I Yes. I think there's a switch you haven't quite.
1: Hello. Uh, so thank you so much for speaking. Uh, it was a very interesting, I think, lecture. Uh, I think one of the reasons why I disagree with this idea of like reverting back to like the 1790s and that form of government is that like slavery was permitted, uh, women weren't allowed to vote, and members of the LGBTQ committee um, LGBTQ committee were forced to secrecy. And so I think this raises the question of, if libertarianism and free markets leads to the exploitation of populations and the infringement of individual rights, is it justified?
0: OK, so I will compl- happily accept that just going back to 1790 is not quite right for the first two reasons you gave. Slavery, women having the right to vote, probably some miscellaneous other things okay, along those lines. But note that those two changes would mean less government. So yes, even in 1790, we had too much government. We had restrictions. We had laws which prevented people from engaging in voluntary transactions, from living their lives, from living where they wanted, and so on. Slavery and the right to vote. On rights for or the treatment of LGBTQ and things like that, or discrimination more generally, so I'm going to talk about it a little bit in the last lecture. Libertarians are generally skeptical of government policies that outlaw discrimination. Now, one thing you can say about that for sure is it makes life more difficult for libertarians to get a wide acceptance. A lot of our policies, you can easily get 20, 30, 40% of the population to agree. If you say we should repeal the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you're gonna have a tough time getting much agreement. some people will immediately write you off completely and not listen to anything else if you take that position. Okay? I'm still going to argue that I think that is what libertarianism suggests and that the fate of minority groups, other oppressed groups, would have been better in the absence okay, of the Civil Rights Act and similar sorts of policies. But I accept that that's a hard sell. Uh, I would, for the voting, I would say that, that was, if, if anything, it was the Civil. It was the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But that's a sort of wonky, separate point. Uh, did it have beneficial effects on the welfare of African Americans? It's not clear. Maybe some, okay, but private actions, boycotts. Maybe people voting with their feet by leaving the most racist places, competition amongst businesses who wanted profits, who may themselves have been biased or not, but cared about profits, to hire the lowest cost labor they could find. I think that that played a much bigger role than the policies per se, but we'll we'll come back to that. Yes.
2: <laughs> you haven't mentioned the term utilitarianism at all. Uh, how is utilitarianism for
0: that. Okay, that's a great question. So, at one level, utilitarianism and cost consequentialism are the same. I try not to use the word utilitarianism because, in economics, it has a very precise meaning. It has the assumption that everybody has a particular utility function. They all have the same utility function. And if that's true, then we can increase aggregate utility by redistributing from rich to poor. Now, in fact, nerdy, wonky journal textbook economics argues that there's no reason to think that people have those kinds of utility functions. In fact, because those utility functions are what is called cardinal, there's meaning to the specific number of utils. Whereas the kinds of utility functions that economics uses are only ordinal. They just allow you to rank which choices you prefer. But there's no actual meaning to the number of utils associated with any bundle of goods and services. So I don't want to endorse utilitarianism without qualification because that can be seen as endorsing redistribution from rich to poor because it raises aggregate utils. And I don't think that's a well-founded view at all. Okay?
2: And second question, on your list of uh, alphabet soup, Organizations you would get rid of—it's always hard to imagine what we would have today had we not had some of those. Uh, and there obviously would be various private regulations and uh, not regulations, perhaps would be various private certifying organizations and right. mechanisms to make that work. So, picking one, your your favorite um, or libertarians' favorite, FDA. Um, you know, there, there's a the sort of classic statement that. Companies uh, don't make a profit by killing their customers, right. uh, ergo, would be self uh, uh, regulating. But well, in fact, there's lots of evidence of companies that, in fact, did things that did kill their customers. Um, uh, so, what would you imagine? What's an example? What's an example? Um, well, right now in China, there are companies that have uh, sold uh, adulterated milk to um, okay. uh, and clearly killed people, and there have been. Um, you look right now at the unregulated part of uh, drugs in this, com- in this country, uh, uh, various uh, vitamin supplements and, uh, and things. We're, we're, we're in some way back to the snake oil uh, period of the 1800s. You turn on the radio, you hear all sorts of things, and they have the disclaimer not meant to uh, treat any illness or disease, but of course they're implying that it is. Um, And if everything was that way, there might be a legitimate problem. So what would you imagine, and I don't want to take up the whole time here, and you may be talking about some of this later, but just as a quick example for the FDA, what would you imagine replacing that so that when you um, got treated, you would have some confidence and uh, your physician would have the ability to, without using all of his time independently reviewing stuff, be able to confidently
0: prescribe a medicine that might actually work? So I think in a world with no FDA, you would have uh, things somewhat similar to consumer reports for medications. You might have numerous of them, and they might would compete with each other to, to, for the right to test, okay, the, and, and get the revenue from testing proposed new drugs. Okay, they would lose profits if they ended up certifying as safe drugs, which turned out then uh, to be dangerous. Hospitals, because for both, you know, well, the hospital for many reasons would uh, not want to buy or sell or prescribe drugs that hadn't been through such certifications. Um, And so I think that system would work sort of much better than the FDA because it would reduce, moderate the delays. It would give people the option. One aspect of a no FDA world is maybe even a world that has an FDA that does the testing but doesn't restrict what can be on the market. So if you want to say, as a patient, I'm only going to use FDA-approved drugs, or you want to say, I'm dying of cancer. I have three weeks to live. I'm going to try this new medication that seems to have some promising initial trials because my alternative is really terrible. You would have that option, and with, with some exceptions, you don't have that option now. The other part is tort liability. Okay? When there are bad drugs, the people who have been harmed can sue and collect, and that creates a strong incentive for the manufacturers not to engage in that behavior. I'm a former
3: state legislator. Okay. And it seemed <laughs> to me um, missing from your list of both libertarian land and things that um, you might change or get rid of um, is, is the bulk of the issues that we deal with, which is um, issues relating to miners children and uh, education, welfare, all that sort of stuff. People who are permanently like minors, which are developmentally disabled, and also people who later in life are sort of like minors, which would be Alzheimer's and nursing homes and things like that. That's a lot of the money spent and a lot of the criminal issues
0: and also. Okay. so note I did not rule out that states might operate a negative income tax. You could broaden that slightly that states might have some sort of safety net that was aimed at helping people who had generally could not easily help themselves, children in particular, people who are mentally ill, another target. Okay. The hope is that by delegating to the states instead of the federal government, the competition between states okay, helps keep those programs moderate and focused on really vulnerable and deserving populations, not writing humongous checks to every single person who's 65 and over under Social Security just because you got to age 65, paying everyone's health insurance just because you got to age 65, and so on. So second, libertarians would argue that there are lots of ways in which the private sector can and will help people, donate to charity, and provide the kinds of services that you describe, um, even if the government is not there. Indeed, the government intervention in charity Shown in all sorts of examples to crowd out the private efforts, so the net benefit of those government efforts is certainly substantially less than it appears because it's partially offsetting something which would otherwise have occurred, have come from the private sector. Thanks.
4: I was also going to mention the slippery slope between cost-benefit analysis and utilitarianism.
1: Okay.
4: And wouldn't natural rights, might they play a role on those? gray area issues to swing
0: the pendulum one way or another for libertarians? So first, I don't try to tell... I try never to tell anyone how to argue for libertarianism. That's entirely up to the individual. Just as different CEOs have different ways of running companies, some are super authoritarian, some are super friendly, and some of each category succeed. Some people get libertarianism from a rights-based perspective. Some people get it, they feel it, they think about it from a cost-benefit perspective. And I think, for the most part, those individuals should argue based on the arguments that make sense to them, okay? So I don't wanna rule it out. I'm not criticizing it. I'm explaining an alternative approach. Now, that said, obviously, I'm an economist. (laughs) I grew up on cost-benefits and consequences, so I'm gonna think about it in that way. But my experience is that falling back on rights rarely convinces people who didn't already agree with us. Because one can assert rights about anything. One can say, I have a right to live in a society where the distribution of income is equal. As libertarians, we would defend anybody's right to say those things, even though we think it would be a bad policy, and we think that actually it would be an equal share of roughly zero GDP if you tried to do that. But that's a consequential argument, which might convince people who really do want to have an egalitarian society but are sensible enough to understand that if you crush the incentive to work hard, you're not going to get very much economic activity. So yes, for many, in many cases, bringing in the issue of rights is more persuasive for some audiences. And for sure, the issue of bringing in rights is a great shorthand. for a whole set of consequences. We think that, or I would say, (laughs) excuse me, I would say that the idea of non-interference, just saying government should never interfere with individual decisions, which by itself is not a consequentialist argument, but is a great rule of thumb for summarizing the fact that when governments interfere, they create all these unintended consequences, and that's why we have this good rule of thumb that's described more in a rights-based way, because it's short and sweet, rather than all the blather that I have. Have gone through. Yes. Uh, hello. I once heard,
5: uh, read from a Peruvian law- lawyer that one of the biggest consequences of policies is that increases the cost of us to obey the law and in, uh, reduces the benefits from obeying the law and increases the benefits from corruption, from paying some kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, uh, some kind of money to the public officer to let us yep. slip the law. Does consequential libertarianism that has the frame of view where you know when a legal system is so saturated with laws that it's impossible to keep uh, putting laws because people cannot, know, cannot have the time nor the information to obey them and they just slip into corruption. I'm from a country where laws are being emitted daily. I'm from Venezuela. So laws are amended daily. I work for a for a co-exporting company and each month they change the laws. And I don't know even though I don't even know if I'm obeying the laws because I have to look for them every month in the official gazette. Consequential libertarianism has
0: into account that kind of problem in Yes, so let me say three things in response to that. One is, uh, issue you raised, is that if you have lots of laws, including many that are going to be disobeyed by a large fraction of the population, you are likely breeding disrespect for the law. If you outlaw drugs, the people who continue to consume drugs, most of them with impunity, most of them don't get caught or jailed or fined or anything, so they might tend to think, gee, laws are kind of silly. I can disobey the ones that I don't like. The people who don't like to use drugs... Or, don't, or choose to obey the law, still see other people are doing it and are sort of annoyed that those people are getting away with something, and they might then think, gee, I guess I'm going to cheat on my taxes a little bit because those other people are getting away with that. I'm going to get away with this. Okay, so the disrespect of the law, I think, is a huge issue. A second issue you raised is that is corruption. Okay? There's all this blather out there in economics journals about trying to reduce corruption and all these fancy, complicated allegedly clever schemes, but there's a super simple way to get a corruption. Don't have any laws. There can't be any bribes paid to some government inspector to let you get around some rule if there was no rule in the first place. So I think I agree that that's really important. And finally, um, the complexity is definitely a huge thing. The more complicated it is, the more it becomes impossible to obey the law. I was told this by, I lived in France for six months in 1998, and people I knew were mainly other academics at the University of Toulouse. And they said, yeah, you know, there's just so many rules here. You can't possibly obey them all, so we just ignore them. <laughs> and then at the end of that trip, my wife and my kids and I spent a, week, a couple weeks in Paris, and we went to, went to Euro Disney. And one thing we noticed immediately was, in contrast to Disney US, people cut in line right, left, and center. And I haven't been to Disneyland for a while, so maybe it's happened in the US too. But in the US, when I went, A couple decades ago, there were these long lines at Disneyland. Nobody wanted to be in those stupid long lines, but you stood in the line until it was your turn. You know, Disney, they were just cutting right, left, and center, which made sense in a country that has so many laws, people just stopped paying attention to the laws.
5: Yeah, it's like a theory of the broken window. When something is not obeyed, they just start obeying. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Hi.
3: In libertarian land, you said there would be no antitrust laws. Uh Uh-huh. Now, I think back to the genesis of our antitrust laws and think that if we'd never had any, we'd all be buying gas from Mr. Rockefeller. Um, We'd all be getting all of our telephone service from AT&T. So the changes we've seen there, arguably, are for the better. If we had no, I mean, and I acknowledge that there have been some pretty stupid antitrust cases brought, but uh, without any antitrust protection, I could foresee a day when we'd buy everything from Amazon. (laughs) After they buy Walmart. Um, So, even Adam Smith said that in his free market world, there was a limited place for government to control monopolies. Do we really want to get rid of all
0: antitrust laws? So, I think the answer is yes. I will certainly agree that the intention of antitrust law is perfectly reasonable. A competitive marketplace is going to have lower prices, greater output, smaller discrepancy between price and marginal cost, blah, 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 blah. However, first, that's never really the question because each industry is as competitive or monopolized as it is for some reason. Generally, because of differences in the cost structure. Rockefeller example you gave, the AT&T example you gave, Google and Amazon, enormous economies of scale. So we would want to have, at a minimum, a very small number of firms, each producing at a very efficient high level of output, not a competitive marketplace with dozens or hundreds of competitors. Second, the two examples you gave, the first example you gave Rockefeller, over the period where Rockefeller was owning more and more railroads and oil sites and all that, what was happening to the price of oil? was going down consistently for decades. Okay? Think about all sorts of other quote unquote bad monopolies. What is the main thing that people accuse Amazon of, okay, or Walmart of? Having prices that are too low, and driving out small mom and pops. Well, the fact is most of those mom and pops are way less efficient than Walmart or Amazon or whatever, so it's actually better for economic efficiency. Now, if you had a totally benevolent, thoughtful, careful, antitrust administrator uh, division. There may be some particular cases where we'd be better off preventing a particular merger or restricting a particular kind of practice. But we don't have that, and we will never have that. Okay, So we'll get a combination of the good and bad things that you described, and I think the profession generally has come to the conclusion that the negatives outweigh the positives. So I agree it's... it's It's not a slam dunk. It's not something where you should say, absolutely, it's just idiotic to think anything else. But overall, I think the evidence is pretty good that antitrust is doing more harm than help. Thank you. Bob?
6: I just wanted to make two points. The gentleman who was up here before had a pretty passionate argument about the need for certain um, agencies in the government. The one that struck me was his uh, argument on the FDA. the FDA probably wouldn't be so bad if they were trying to prevent drugs or whatever from killing people, but they we have had such mission creeps, in, creep, excuse me, creep in each one of these agencies. Now the FDA is tasked with uh, 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 justifying efficacy of drugs, which is impossible. I mean, just about every doctor you ever talked to will tell you one drug works on one person, works on doesn't work on another, and as these things are created. They, they just continue to grow. And I, I wanted to give them an example also of maybe private uh, private industries or private groups uh, authorizing things. Uh, I worked a lot of years for Procter & Gamble. One of the things that made Crest Toothpaste was the ADA approval, mm-hmm. which wasn't a big deal, but that legitimized Crest Toothpaste and is now a billion in-dollar brand. You know, those things are already there and, and, and to me, support the fact that we don't need this alphabet soup of thousands of government agencies, and I just want to make a last point. I'm sorry, I should have come up with a question, but um, <laughs> we do a, We do a terrible job, uh, all of us, uh, describing libertarianism. When I try to convince people um, the effectiveness of libertarian values, you know, the, the response is always, "Well, you're the guys that want the open borders. You just want everybody who wants to come over the border to rush the border." Right. Uh, you know, you're, you're the guys that want to uh, make uh, heroin legal so everybody's going to walk around stoned the rest of their lives. And, my gosh, I just wish we had um, a better spokesperson, other than Cato, maybe, <laughs> explaining these things because, my gosh, uh, you know, technology, I think, is in our favor. And if explained correctly, I, I think we've got a hell of a movement. But I'm sorry for pontificating.
0: Okay, so I'll comment on it briefly on part of what you said on the advocacy. I don't think we can do anything to get away from the open borders, the crack cocaine for eight-year-olds, et cetera, et cetera. Because if we ever got to be somewhat successful, if we had a presidential candidate who was actually threatening the chances of the two major parties, then for sure we would have to address all those things. Because their spokespeople, their critics, are going to get us on TV and say, isn't it true that libertarians believe in open borders and legalizing heroin and fentanyl? And the short answer is, yes, it's true. Because that's what we tend to believe. Now, different people, of course, just as I said, different people argue using rights-based approaches or consequential. Different libertarians draw these lines in different places. There's no one exact right or wrong as to how far you go in rolling back government. We can't get away from the fact that the logical extension of saying we should have substantially more legal immigration is to have open borders. The logical extension of legalizing marijuana is to start to legalize other things, like cocaine and heroin and so forth. I think our line is different. And it's not going to work either, but it's, I think, slightly better, which is to say, in our ideal world, if we were starting from scratch, no, we wouldn't create 99% of all these policies. But we're not. We're starting from a huge amount of big government. So there are many, many ways that we can move in the libertarian direction in moderate ways and see how it goes. We can legalize marijuana and see how it goes. We can open our borders somewhat more. We can just expand the quotas for the different kinds of legal immigration now. So we're admitting 1.5 million a year instead of 1 million legal immigrants a year, and so on and so forth. We can shrink the welfare state's growth rate enough so it doesn't bankrupt the entire country. Okay? It's hard to argue that that's a, a, a unreasonable. So, but we have to admit that the logical extension of many of our views is, are these ex- positions which are thought of as extreme. Because if we deny it, then we look as though we're politicians. Then we're spinning. Then we're saying it in a way which is not going to look consistent and coherent. And then we lose all credibility. The only thing we've got is consistency, honesty, and credibility.
7: If you don't have cap and trade or carbon taxes, how would there be any restrictions or regulations on polluting companies or other companies that impose negative externalities on society?
0: So let me just talk about uh, environmental policy more generally. Properly understood, and first, by putting that particular one up there, I wasn't saying that a cap and trade or carbon tax was necessarily a bad policy. I just wanted to say it has an unintended consequence. That one should take into account in thinking about the whole set of costs and benefits of a carbon tax. Okay? More broadly, properly understood, eco- excuse me, libertarians should not be hostile. We are not against environmental policies. We're against stupid environmental policies. Good environmental policies are about defining and enforcing property rights. If I am a manufacturing plant, located on a river and I'm dumping noxious waste into that river and it's making it harder for people downstream to enjoy the clean water in that river, I've basically harmed somebody else's property, I've stolen from some other person, say a resort located down the river, and we would ideally like the government in some way to define who owns that clean water. There's a theorem in economics called the Coase theorem which says it doesn't matter to whom you give that property right, But you have to assign a property so that becomes a tradable good. And then either the manufacturing plant will bribe the resort to allow it to dump the pollution or the resort will pay the manufacturing plant not to dump the pollution, but you'll get an efficient outcome. So we're not anti-environmental policy because good ones are just establishing the appropriate property rights. Some cases, like clean air and water, it's kind of hard to do it with a direct property rights approach. How do we say this cubic meter of air is mine? and the one in front of you was yours. So instead, regulation that says you can't put super noxious stuff in the air or the water you know, is plausibly a second best way to define and delineate the property rights. Given that, uh,
4: <clears throat> that you are preaching to the choir, yeah. uh, how would you approach the alternative to big government to those who uh, are unaware of it? And, In particular, I'm the school board president. I review the book. I reviewed one of the Pearson textbooks. that's mandated. I voted against it, but I was voted down. Uh, It was a textbook on history that broke things down into decades. And in the 20s, we're talking about American history, the question posed in the textbook is if you were in this community in the 20s, the Depression, where would you have gone to seek help? Now, it's a dated, uh-huh. factual question. Uh-huh. But, it, of course, you know the answer that was printed for the students to read. No, There was nothing about your community, uh, religious groups, anything. It was the federal government. So they don't even know that there's an alternative. So how do we get that to the... the Sympath- That's a hard question.
0: I know um, it is. If
4: I had the answer, I mean,
0: I be t- to talking to individuals who I'm pretty sure are not overall sympathetic, I try to figure out some area in which they do tend to agree. Depends whether they're from the right or the left or whatever, and talk about that, and then say, Don't, "Wouldn't you agree that the set of costs and benefits about this issue are similar to the sets of costs and benefits about some other issue that you have a very different view about?" Someone someone on the left says marijuana should be legal or drugs should be legal because it generates crime, corruption, underground markets, blah, 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 blah. You say, well, wouldn't exactly the same set of negative effects occur in terms of driving the market underground and creating violent dispute resolution and on and on and on if we outlawed guns? Now, most lefties are not going to like that argument. But a few of them will say, hmm, that's sort of annoying because that's kind of a logical position. So it depends on with whom you're debating as to what tactic is going to but you know i teach a course i get students who come and take the course who are not libertarians but they listen they think about it they argue with their sweet mates and all that sort of stuff so you just have to do it another theme that's come up every single cato u i've ever done and it's come up for every single speaker not just me is Someone in the audience will get up and say, God, this sounds so great. How are we going to win? How are we going to make this all happen? And every single speaker says the same thing. We're not. All we're going to do is slow the rate of growth back to super big government. All we can do is a few people at a time, a few policies at a time, try to keep it from being as bad as it would otherwise be. There's something in human nature that doesn't like really small government. We had really small government, and it changed. And you could also say that, relative to most of history and most other countries, U.S. and you know the other countries that come out high in the index of economic freedom and human freedom, things are pretty good. Most people have freedom of religion, of speech. They can marry whom they want. They can choose the occupation they want. You can buy the houses you want. So. It's not so bad. We've seen significant progress on some issues like marijuana and same-sex marriage and things like that. Yes, there's a billion new pages in the Federal Register every month, but mostly the businesses just ignore it. There's not enough people in the world to enforce it all. So it's bad, but it's not
1: catastrophic. So,
0: I don't know. I don't have a better answer, I'm sorry. Okay.
1: Um, Marshall Stocker in the back of the room here from Boston. Um, First, to preface my question, I'll, I'll give you a suggestion. I think you should call it libertarian lands because I think you're suggesting jurisdictional competition, perhaps. And that brings me to my question of how do we deal with super jurisdictional issues like interstate commerce? And I can anticipate you saying, well, you can agree to the jurisdiction prior to the transaction. That has very high transaction costs. And what's on my mind is really the... Britain's exit from the European Union and the bit of libertarian literature I've read, I think it's Austerly, um, is very unfulfilling as to how libertarians can deal with multi-jurisdictional issues.
0: Uh, not sure I have a clear sense of what you're asking, and I mean I can talk about Brexit, but you have something okay. deeper so deeper in mind. If you have two
1: parties. You say the role of government is to enforce the rule of law, to enforce contract. Right. right? Frequently in business and commerce, there's dual jurisdictions involved. Okay. Okay. Sometimes by design, sometimes by accident. Okay, so, this, so this, up is, with this is, be, I have to say, entities. this
0: is beyond my area of expertise. It's, it's more okay. legal than economics. I haven't thought about this particular issue. But we must have a set of rules that is more or less followed now, because people are currently living under two jurisdictions uh, throughout the United States, the state and the federal, and sometimes these things are adjudicated in state courts, sometimes in federal courts, sometimes both, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I don't know. I can have to pass on that question. I, Let's talk
0: about it in the break, and then maybe we'll raise okay. it again after I understand it. It's the method by which it.
1: federal government grows when you can't settle this privately.
0: Well, that's, we had an attempt to limit that growth called the Commerce Clause, and the Supreme Court shredded it. Yeah. So uh, my short answer is we should restore the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. I know that's I can, not going to happen. but um, OK, are we set?
3: Oh, you got four minutes. There,
0: there was got, one other gentleman oh, who was there. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay.
7: Okay, so uh, just quickly, I'm I'm from California, and we had 900 new laws dropped on us in the last (laughs) fiscal year, because we needed them. Um, (laughs) Um, Every single one. But I'm I'm probably usually that guy who comes up here and says, you know, what's the big picture? I do think libertarian stuff is too fragmented, and I think the argument on the border thing or immigration, it's like there's this mess, and then they point to the border thing, but... but (laughs) You know, the truth is you got to fix the welfare state before you can say you have open borders, or that's the, the argument anyway, right? you got to fix the problem before you can poke it.
0: That right is the west. usual okay. argument. I don't think that argument is right, personally.
7: Okay. Well, we'll but, put that aside. Okay. I do. But <laughs> uh, 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 is there another – because I view most of the problem – because I don't think people want big government. I think – Government people want big government because I've seen the growth in government over the last 50 years, uh, 30 years. Every time I go to DC, it gets bigger and better. Um, So is there a, a different way to elect officials is if we can go back to the Greek system of uh, lottery, can we, or is it going to still be the bribe? And once you've given something, you never give it. Never comes it never,
0: back. I certainly agree. Government rarely goes away. Yeah. There are like a teeny handful of examples where some big government actually went away. Uh, there's a whole literature in economics about designing voting systems or electoral systems or whatever, and there's a theorem, and the theorem says there's no good system. It says the only way to have a (laughs) consistent and coherent set of decisions that aggregates the preferences of a bunch of underlying individuals is if the decision rule happens to just be the preferences of one individual, i.e. dictatorship. So that's not reassuring for thinking that we can fix any of this with procedural or structural changes in the way we do elections. Can I answer your your first part, your open borders?
7: No, because I know your answer. Uh, but everybody else doesn't know no, my no, answer. Okay, but I wanted to hit the Venezuela issue because that's another one. Because you say we can only slow it down. You know, there comes a tipping point. Venezuela used to be a great place. But then there comes a tipping point where it goes bad fast. And the question is, you know, you're, you're slowing down. But, or the meteor is slowing down for some reason. But it's still going to hit the earth. So I don't like the, I mean, it's probably a fair answer. But I don't like the answer, we're just slowing down the inevitable.
0: I don't like it either. <laughs> of course I don't like it. Okay, but the question, I mean, and I'm happy to be given suggestions or be persuaded, but what evidence can we point to to suggest that as a whole, I mean, part of what you said is really important. I think there're plenty of people who don't think of themselves as libertarians or talk about, but they're sort of open to smaller government. They don't really like interference. They understand restrictions on liberty can be bad, except we're now in the East status where if you want your company to succeed or your industry to succeed, you almost have to go lobby the government to get special favors for your company or industry. And where there's so many rules and so many people are benefiting from all this stuff, insider interest, that any individual would have to be incredibly principled to not end up doing the same for their particular interest. Yeah. But we're stuck with that. So getting away from that, I'm just saying it's hard. I
7: know, I've seen it for 30 years. Go, but go ahead and answer the other one about the
0: border. <laughs> uh, the Milton Friedman line is always was always, we should uh, eliminate the welfare state and then open the borders. I think, first, that's a dodge, because we're not gonna eliminate the welfare state. It's very, very, very unlikely to happen. Secondly, I think that opening the borders, and I don't mean zero, literally zero, I mean substantially expanded legal immigration, guest worker programs, all sorts of things, would help to reduce the welfare state because the population will vote for a much less generous welfare state if they think that a significant fraction is going to people who initially don't seem like them. And there are various examples and studies and data that are consistent with that view. So I think that we can get the benefits of expanded immigration without waiting until the welfare state has been reduced. Okay, I'll stop for there. Thank you. Very good.